Hello and welcome. You're listening to Lore and Legend with your host, Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. Today, we're joined by our guest storyteller, Simon Haywood. Simon is a storyteller, musician, composer, and senior lecturer in creative and professional writing at the University of Derby. He completed a PhD on contemporary storytelling at Sheffield University's National Centre for English Cultural Tradition in 2001, and has lectured in creative writing at Derby since 1996. His work with Tim Ralphs on the Epic of Gilgamesh was awarded Best Collaboration at the 2012 British Awards for Storytelling Excellence. And he is an author of two books of myth and folklore, The Legend of Vortigern and South Yorkshire Folktales, both available from the History Press. Simon and I had a great discussion about the role of the storyteller and the relationship between folklore and our knowledge of history. But as always, we start with the tales. As a reminder to our listeners, Law and Legend is created in the city of Sheffield in South Yorkshire, England. Simon shared with me two tales drawn from the history of Sheffield and the locality of our city centre. Well, I was thinking about what I, what I should do, and I thought, um, seeing as we're in Sheffield, I'll do this one, because it's a story that is absolutely of a particular place, and it's the last place you'd expect to find it. And it's the story of a bargist. Now, uh, if you know your northern folklore, you know what a bargist is. It's a kind of demon, you know, a thing that is found in wild places. They have them up on the North York Moors as well, and all this kind of thing. And if you if you see a bargist, then it's it's not not a good thing. And if you go around central Sheffield now, the last place you would expect to find a bargist would be on Campo Lane in the city centre, but if you go back in time, then what you'll find is there is a story of such a thing. And it relates to a guy whose name was Woolhouse, Joseph Woolhouse. Um, and Joseph Woolhouse was from Sheffield, and he lived around Sheffield. And when he was getting up in years, he wrote a memoir of his memories of the town of Sheffield in his own young days. So I think he was writing in the kind of mid-1800s and he was looking back to Sheffield as it was in the early uh, early 1800s, late 1700s to early 1800s. And at that point, Sheffield was a remarkable place, a really remarkable place for all sorts of reasons which I can't go into now. But it was a boom town, basically. They, they, it was a place where if you're prepared to work hard, and knife makers were particularly, you know, cutlers, knife makers were was, was particularly the industry that Sheffield was in. But basically, they you were beholden to nobody if you 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 would work and earn your own money. Um, with the result that it was basically it was a hotbed of revolution. And in the 1790s, when Napoleon Bonaparte was the general hero of the French Revolution, and fighting his way on behalf of the revolution down Italy and turning Europe, setting Europe at its heels, turning it upside down. In Sheffield, if there was a battle, they would throw a street party if Napoleon won. <laughs> and... In the 1790s, when Napoleon was winning all his big victories in Italy, in Sheffield, they would roast an ox every time he won and then cut it up into portions and take the portions around the poor of the town. With the result that, you know, Sheffield was teetering on the brink of being a local place of revolution. And, and they sent a, a, a regiment of the army to, to and quartered it in Sheffield, really just to keep the peace, to keep the public order and keep, keep, keep the revolution down. And they were running battles in the streets of Sheffield every night. And there was only, the, the only pub in central Sheffield where you could drink the King's Health safely without risk of getting your head stoved in was the um, was the Brown Bear on Chapel Walk um, by the, uh, by the, you know, just around the corner from the central library. So there was a lot going on in Sheffield at the time. Bang in the middle of this is Joseph Morehouse, um, who was a local writer. And he never had any money to publish his books so he wrote his memories of the city of Sheffield and kept it in manuscripts. And, what, and he used to rent the manuscript out. So if you wanted to read it, you'd go around his house, give him the money, the shilling or whatever, and then you'd get the manuscripts and you'd take it to the pub and read it to your friends or you'd take it home and read it to yourself. And that was, that was the form of publication that he got. 
and really all it, all the book was, or all that particular book was, was a description street by street of the Sheffield that he remembered from his own childhood 50 or 60 years before. But uh, it it's interesting because whenever he, every so often it'll be, yeah, and then you come up the hill and there's a big house on the corner and that's the house where nobody will go at night because of the noises that come out of it. There's one story that he tells fully and he probably knew it in full because it was current in his family. Um, he himself, I think, was worked in the knife trade ultimately, but I think his um, grandfather had run a pub and a brewery, which was down at Kellam Island, and so down at the bottom of the hill. And Walhouse's grandfather had a guy who worked for him in the pub, who was lame and went around on crutches. Um, and this guy lived um, a little bit further down, uh, further down. Kellam Island out towards sort of up the Don back towards Hillsborough um, and every morning he would get up you know get on his crutches hobble into work go and do that and hobble back and, at the end of the day and most of the time he would never go into Sheffield even he would he would just go up and down you know up and down Kellam Island in between his own house and the brewery but there was one day when he had to go up into Sheffield to do some transact some business or some description I don't quite know what and in order to get from Kellam Island up to um, up to town. Up, at that time, you had to cross what's now Paradise Square, but it was but it was so long ago there was no houses built on Paradise Square. It was a field. And it was called Hicks's Style, and the lie of the land doesn't change much, but it was steeper back then than it is now. That has been filled in at the bottom, and so um, this guy limped up. Hicks's style into Sheffield. He was all day in Sheffield transacting his business and it was dark when he came out and so he came out the edge of town and whenever he did this he would always go along Campo Lane as far as the far end of Hicks's style and then turn the corner going down the hill. And on this particular occasion it was dark and as he left the city and he was going out any there would be there would be no natural light. He was coming down Campo Lane meaning to go his normal way down to the edge of the field and then turn right and down the hill. And he looked over his shoulder and whatever he saw looking over his shoulder in the dark convinced him that there was a Bargist coming at him. And he turned and he began to run. And he realised that he wouldn't be able to get to all the, to the other end of Campo Lane uh, before the thing would get him. He'd have to get out of the way so he hopped over the fence of Hicks's style and he ran uh, crossways through Hicks's style threw himself over the ditch in the field at the bottom and somehow managed to get all the way back to his own house and he was thumping and banging on the door his wife opened the door to meet him he threw himself in through the door slammed the door behind locked and bolted it and turned and collapsed and his wife says what's Awesome. He says, you're never going to believe what I've seen. Just coming over Hicks's style, he said, I had a bargain chase me all the way over the style and back down here. And she says, never mind the bargain. He says, what's happened to your crutches? And he looked down, he realised he'd got no crutches. He said, I don't know. She said, well, you better go back and fetch them. He says, I must have left them on Hicks's style. She says, well, we can't afford another one. He says, if you think I'm going back out there tonight, he says, if they're there, and if they're there lying in the grass, they can lie there till the morning. And so he went to bed. And the next morning he got up in the light and retraced his steps. And he found his crutches lying abandoned in the grass of Hicks's style. And it was only when he was stood there in the field with the crutches in his hands that he realised he'd run and walked all the way from Sheffield to his home in Kellam Island and back again without the crutches. And he had had a bit of pain in his feet. So he put the crutches over his shoulder and went down to... To the to work to the brewery where Woolhouse was Woolhouse's grandfather was employing him, and he says you'll never guess what's happened to me. He says what's happened to you? He says I've been cured of my lameness by a bargain, and he told him the whole story of how this demon thing had chased him and what had happened. And they were so pleased for him that they shut up shop. They didn't sell any beer. They just like broached a barrel and sat there and drunk it all afternoon. And by the time he made it home. He was uh, limping and staggering for an altogether different reason. But, uh, but from that day onwards to the, to the end of his days, he never needed to use the crutches again. And that story must have gone into, uh, gone into the family because it was Woolhouse, it was the, the gaffer's grandson was Woolhouse who wrote it in the book and would rent it out for pennies. 
in the pubs around Sheffield, you know, 50 or 60 years later. And, you know, it's a story, it's a, it's a ghost story, a demon story about a haunting in the centre of Sheffield. And that's not the most remarkable thing about it. The most remarkable thing about it is that if you go up Campo Lane now, you see it's all been built up. Uh, Paradise Square was built in the 18th century, so you've got all these old, you know, very handsome brick townhouses around this square where the field once stood. And, of course, the rest of Sheffield has sprung up and built up around it. But if you stand on Campo Lane and walk down into Paradise Square, what you'll find is that the there's a car park on the square itself with the houses all around, but there's still a diagonal path that runs right the way across the square, just as the guy's footpath, the, the path that the path that he ran across the field, um, down by the three tons. That pub that's closed now, and so on down to Kellermine, and that must have been the way that he went. So you'd never know. You could walk past there a dozen times, and you'd never have the slightest idea that there was ever a story associated with it. But once you actually stand there with the story in your mind and look, you can see the story fits the landscape around you with the neatness of a piece of a jigsaw slotting in and it's remarkable and magical so i tell that story whenever i possibly can in this next story simon refers to joseph maver a significant figure in sheffield's history of political dissent and radicalism which simon has been talking about maver was a file cutter a working man in one of sheffield's key industries in the 18th century which was making cutlery and working tools. But Maver was also a balladeer who wrote scathing songs of political satire and protest, and was famous for performing them publicly while sitting backwards astride a donkey. Maver wasn't able to write, but his songs were transcribed by friends and by fans. Here's a snippet of one of his songs performed by Yorkshire folk musician Ray Hearn, who very graciously gave us permission to play this for you. We'll hear the full song at the end of the show and let you know where you can hear more of Maver's songs and Ray's music. Corruption tells me homicide Is a willful murder justified A striking precedent was tried In August 95 When armed assassins dressed in blue wantonly their townsmen slew and magistrates and juries too at murder did connive but yeah but he ran he ran crossways across paradise square and if you just looked up to his left he would have seen the queue in the corner uh, where Joseph Mather sold his uh, sold his ballads and there's another story many years later when Joseph Mather was selling uh, selling ballads outside the queue in the corner. Um, the landlord of the queue in the corner was a great was a great musician, and he always had to be the first in Sheffield with a new tune. If there was a new tune book out or a new tune, he always had to be the one. And he would never play if there was another musician within earshot because there were fellows there who were so sharp on the fiddle that they only had to hear the tune once and they had it learned and they didn't want anybody else to know it. So there was a great rivalry among the musicians and fiddle players of Sheffield. And there was a fiddle there called Blind Stephen, um, who was the sharpest of the lot. He only had to hear a tune once when he did it. Um, and he would be around the queue in the corner and he would have a, you know, an ongoing rivalry with the landlord. And they would stay up late drinking and playing and um, blind Stephen lived up, he was blind, he, he, he lived up the hill and came to the end of the evening one foggy night um, and blind Stephen was on his way home he turned to the landlord and he says, oh, could I borrow a lantern to get, to get myself home? And he asked it so naturally that the landlord just handed over a lantern without thinking about it and it was only when blind Stephen was gone out of the pub with the fiddle tucked under one arm and the lantern on the other, the landlord stopped and said, hang on, what am I doing lending a lantern to a blind fiddler? Now, that was a big question because the thing is, you know, there was many a fiddler in Sheffield at that time who would pretend to be blind just to get the, the busking uh, and the money that went with it. And I thought, well, I've known blind Stephen for years. He's blind as a baby, isn't he? I'll have to ask him next time he's in. So the next time he came in, blind Stephen made his way to the bar and put the lantern on the counter. He says, there you go, there's your lantern. 
And he says, thanks. And he thanked him. And he said, listen, I have a question to ask you. And Blind Stephen said, ask away. He said, why does a blind man want a lantern to light his way home? And Blind Stephen said, well, it was a very foggy night. And the streets were very narrow. And the cobbles were very uneven. And the landlord all said, yes, but you wouldn't be able to see by the lantern. And Blind Stephen, it wasn't me. I wanted to see. I wanted the others to see me coming so they wouldn't jostle me fiddle out of my arm and smash it on the cobbles. <laughs> So the number got to let him get away without them. I invited Simon as one of our first guests because of his importance in my own journey into storytelling. It was through attending a seminar about adapting Irish myth from literary manuscripts run by Simon that I first got a glimpse into the whole world of contemporary folk storytelling, launching me towards the Story Forge Club and the British Storytelling Festivals that meet every summer. To kick off the interview, I asked Simon to tell us about his professional career as a storyteller. Well, I must be getting on for about 30 years now. Uh, most of that I've been teaching creative writing in a university context. Um, a lot of that time as well I've been doing freelance storytelling work and also my own stuff. I also do a bit of writing, fiction and non-fiction, mostly non-fiction so far. Um, and I research a lot as well. I work with other storytellers and I work to support them in their work. Um, and generally a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, really, I think. Um, so I suppose as far as the uh, the outside world is concerned, they think of me as a university lecturer um, in creative writing. But in point of fact, you know, the secret of that is that there's generally some story or storytelling element involved in most of what I do. And actually, I think my work pattern is not that of a typical <laughs> university lecturer necessarily. Uh, I've done quite a lot of freelance work. I've done a couple of commissions for storytelling festivals. Um, I did one for Beyond the Border, which is um, a storytelling festival in South Wales, um, three or four years ago. I did another one um, a couple of years ago at the Festival of the Edge, which is the other big storytelling festival. I've done a certain amount of work in schools as well, um, storytelling clubs. Um, as any storyteller, basically, if you have any uh, wish to get yourself out there on the road, then you find yourself telling stories in lots of different contexts, like barges, castles, <laughs> primary schools, you know, derelict building sites. It really just depends on whatever people want to ask you to do, which is part of the challenge of it, really, uh, part of the fun, part of the attraction. Uh, but it means that you end up living on your wits quite a lot of the time, uh, having, to be, having to be a little bit shrewd. So it, as a as a choice of life, it rewards um, the personality type, which is um, good at good at shrewdness, <laughs> flexible, yeah. Flex, flexible, versatile, yeah, <laughs> quick witted. I think. I asked Simon to go into a bit more detail about how he first came to storytelling and whether he was already an academic when he started to perform. No, I wasn't. I was a, I was mainly a folk music enthusiast. Um, in my teens, I started going to the local folk club in the little town where I grew up. Um, and as a result of that, I ended up going to folk festivals. So mainly I used to play in bands when I was in my teens and early 20s. And as a result of that, I, I pretty much got dragged along to some storytelling sessions. Because I, I don't know if it happens still nowadays, but Sydney Festival is one of the big folk music festivals that uh, happens in Britain. 30 years ago, they used to have regular storytelling sessions at a pub called The Volunteer, which was like a small venue sort of on the edge of town. It was it was uh, an add-on to the programme, really. Most of the programme of the festival was devoted to music and dance. I got dragged along to uh, some storytelling event. I didn't really get dragged along, but I was I was a bit dismissive of the whole thing. Uh, but my friends, you know, one of whom is now a novelist, you know, uh, called Sarah Dunnicky. She's got a book called The Companions Out. So, quick plug for that on behalf of Sarah, because I owe her. Um, she and another friend of Michael, Ian Fairweather, who, who were hanging around at the time, they, they would go along to the storytelling session. And in the end, I went along, or really just to catch the last 10 minutes, and then to go on to uh, the Chippy, and then head on to a concert. And I walked into this pub garden where there was a guy called Chris, who I didn't know at all. 
uh, halfway through this great, long, involved Irish wonder tale that went off down side alleys or something. He was about halfway through it by the time I got there, and I just sat there for 15, 20 minutes and listening to him. It was kind of instantly rooted to the spot. And I found out since then that a lot of people had a very similar experience. Really, they didn't really know what storytelling was, but once they saw it done, they they had this moment of wow, and I had that wow moment there at that point, um, and really sort of took it from there and have been stumbling from one thing to another ever since. As I mentioned, my own journey into storytelling began as a result of seeing Simon deliver a seminar on adapting Irish myths from literature with the storytelling company Adverse Camber. I talked to Simon about his own experience of discovering storytelling for the first time and asked him what he believed made storytelling such a powerful art and method of entertainment. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I had a, a similar experience of, uh, well, I don't know, it's, it's not quite a similar experience because I went along with wild by storytellers, but uh, as as I mentioned, uh, the reason that I went and did that was because he came and uh, uh, did a seminar at the university on uh, Ad- 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 Adverse Camber, Camber, yeah, that's it. The Twisting Field. The Twisting Field, that's right, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I remember coming out at the end and being like, oh, God, I've got to go and hear some storytelling because it sounds fantastic. <laughs> well, I think people don't, I mean, this is certainly true of my experience, people don't realise that it can be done. And uh, it's, we, as, as a community, we fall out of the habit of sitting there and listening to any length, for any length of time to someone just telling a story. Now, the thing is, that's not entirely true. You go to all sorts of concepts, like you'll sit, you go to a stand-up show and listen to somebody talking for 60 minutes or whatever and, and effectively what they'll be doing is telling one story after another but it's comedy so there's laughter involved and they might not yeah, but, but the idea of just sitting there and focusing on, on a narrative is a moment of sort of excited discovery where you sort of half an hour or an hour or whatever it is and suddenly you have to get found somewhere else and I think we expect to be able to have that kind of transport from books or from film or possibly from music but to, um, to be in a position where you can have all that and that whole emotional palette of joy and sorrow and laughter and tears and, and wonder and anger and and you know a sense of the foibles of human nature that to have all of that just by somebody sat there and talking. Now there's an argument to be made that we've lost touch with storytelling as an art form and as a mode of cultural expression in our media saturated world, or at least storytelling as a folk art. Our world is now dominated by other forms of storytelling. Literature, journalism, professional theatre, television and film. While many of us remain avid and enthusiastic consumers of stories and storytelling, how many of us can claim to have a personal relationship with stories that we tell or think of ourselves as being part of a storytelling tradition? Simon explains how practitioners of traditional storytelling preserve that relationship today. And generally speaking, if you look at the great storytellers who um, who have been around, then very often at the back of what they do, somewhere at a greater or lesser degree of distance, is, is a, a tradition or a community where that habit has not entirely been lost to quite the same extent. You know, So the big example, particularly if you're interested in contemporary storytelling, would be the Scottish Travellers who... Uh, had a very uh, rich, uh, and the Irish travellers as well, had a very rich song culture and a very rich storytelling culture. And, and from about the 1950s onwards, they were increasingly um, sharing this with outsiders. So you could go along and hear Duncan Williamson tell stories and um, and uh, you know, listen to Sheila Stewart. And I think to hear something like that was a very big thing for me, a very big um, formative experience. I think, um, and I think really, really worth doing. Uh, and the situation that I'm in at the moment now is with um, is, is my wife, Shen Lee, who also works as a storyteller, is in, in that position. She had a family. The reason, one of the reasons why she works now as a storyteller is because she had a family tradition of storytelling, which she learned in its entirety from her grandmother through childhood. Um, and uh, this was one of those traditions. It was um, it was based in Northern Europe, and it was Jewish in terms of its cultural background. And there was hundreds and hundreds of stories of this hero and that hero, and and, and this heroine and that heroine, and, and 
and once she gets started, she can just keep going for hours without drawing breath, you know. So um, increasingly, what I do nowadays is less of my own stuff and, and more of recording her stuff and trying to keep that family tradition going. Because as far as we're aware, there's she's the only one doing it. There may be other people out there who have similar kind of things, but we, we haven't found them yet. So um, a big part of the interest for me nowadays is um, supporting Charlie in keeping her family tradition alive, getting it documented, um, and she has students that she teaches aspects of it too, so I do a bit of that as well. And that really is, is kind of off the scale, you know, I would have, her grandmother never wrote a single story down, but uh, but still probably had, although it's difficult to know if it's not written down, but probably knew several thousand stories. That, I think, is um, an unusually large amount of memory to hold, uh, certainly from my point of view, but if you look at oral cultures where where um, storytelling is still very much a fixture, it's, it, uh, feats of memory of that size are not particularly unusual. Um, but it's all very sensitive to context. Um, there's a, a really interesting book written on Finnish storytelling in Finland. There are a number of traditions which are still, I mean, I think they're still I don't know if they're still fully functional, but they 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 were running until pretty recently, um, and there was certainly research being done on people who remember who who had learned the stories in childhood and were still around in the sixties, and there was a, a scholar who would go and knock on doors and 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 and, and find people who were. Telling these stories, and they may not, they may not have told, they may have heard the stories in childhood, and, and then just never have thought about them for fifty or sixty years. Then sat down, and, and as soon as somebody was there saying, "Oh, tell me some of these stories," then they would go, "Oh, not, this not this one that my grandmother knew." And then suddenly the floodgates would open, and you'd have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines of poetry and charms and all these kinds of things, which which lay latent in the memory for the most of their lifetimes. You know, so memory is a remarkable thing, um, and I think. If you if you grow up in a culture where the expectation is that you'll make full use of your memory, then yeah, you can retain an enormous amount of information. But we tend not to we tend not to rely on it. We just sort of, you know make notes and and rely on text, and you don't realise the capacity that you do have. I put it to Simon that traditional storytelling is so low in the popular consciousness that most are not even aware of the depth and breadth of material that is available to us as recorded and written down huge collections of folk tales, myths and legends beyond those of the Brothers Grimm fairy tales, the literary works of Hans Anderson and the famous adaptions of Disney. And that even fewer would be aware of and conceive of storytelling as a living tradition passed from person to person that still survives today in many contexts and cultures. It is still a living tradition. Yeah, I mean, depending on what you mean by living tradition. I mean, I think, you know, storytelling tradition is always being declared dead um, and then suddenly being found to be alive somewhere where you least expected it. You know? uh, and I've had several experiences of that. In fact, you know, seeing as here we are in Sheffield, I've had one of them in Sheffield. You know, I, was, uh, I found a story or a, uh, an old legend in a book, or there was a theory anyway, a historical theory. There was, an old, there was a battle in the Dark Ages. And there's a theory that it took place in what is now the corner in Tinsley Wood on the corner of the golf course by Sheffield Parkway. I was writing a book on South Yorkshire folk tales. Uh, at one point, we were organising story walks. So I organised a story walk, got the train to Sheffield, and then got the bus from Sheffield out to, through Darnall to Meadow Hall so we could walk over towards Tinsley Wood and tell this story in situ. And so I was sat there on the bus with half a dozen friends thinking I was this terrible, mystical person for having come up with all this stuff. And I was halfway through telling the story on the bus, and the guy got on the bus with his shopping, and he already knew the story, and he overheard it. Um, and, and he joined in and finished the story off for me. Um, but the thing he couldn't remember, he couldn't remember the name of the king, so he waited until they got the bus to the next stop, and then, then someone else, but then, then one of his mates got on, and the two of them were sat there at the front saying, what was the name of that king? And so I never got a word in that from that point on. I don't think I even finished the story because the two of them were, were arguing over who this king was. And I bet, you know, if, if you, you know, so somebody listening to, to this podcast when it goes out, it'll probably sort of spur some kind of memory. And that sort of thing happens an awful lot. 
And I think what's at the back of it is the fact that life changes so fast nowadays that the rhythm of life is such that it's not maybe as easy as once it was to be in a position where you could sit down and know that you were going to hear a certain story told in a certain house or by a certain neighbour or all these kinds of things. That, that stability doesn't exist in the same way. But the stories still, still survive. The loss of a community tradition of storytelling is arguably also a loss of relationship with our local history, the places that we live. And so Simon's work as a historian and a storyteller often speak directly to each other as a way of restoring and rebuilding our relationship with our local environments and landscapes, which themselves are coloured with a rich tradition of story, legend and folklore, if only we would connect with it and preserve it. The connection between sort of folklore and um, and stories and and history comes across very strongly, which I mean seems obvious to an extent, but actually for especially people who aren't coming at it from a living tradition themselves, you know, a lot of these stories tend to get told kind of like um, as sort of I suppose removed from things like local history. It's such an amazing thing to 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 have a story and then to know that you can go to the place where the story is actually said to have happened. Isn't it? There's a story of a of a rock or a small crag in the Lake District where King Arthur is supposed to have uh, met a fairy woman and um, they had a daughter together. And the story tells what happens. Then what happens to the daughter? It's all supposed to have taken place on this particular crag. Now, I've been going to the Lady Street for all of my life, and whenever I get off the train at Windermere, I always get the 555 bus up by film. And when the road hasn't collapsed, which it quite often has nowadays, you know, days of flooding and global warming. But, you know, you, you've got even odds of getting to Keswick in one piece on the 555. And if you're in two-thirds of the way up at the head of film, and there is this rock. Now, I've been on that bus, on the bus dozens of times, never even noticed the rock. And then I read the story, and now I can't go past that rock without looking at it and thinking of the story. There's a sense in which it kind of it renews or refreshes your your relationship with the physical environment. And while there's a great deal of value in looking at stories that are from you know from landscapes that you're not familiar with or from landscapes which don't exist, you know, your Game of Thrones, Westeros, this, that, <laughs> or the other, you know. I mean, I I think that that there's always there's a a layer of magic in just being able to go out and see these you know, see these places. You know, this is where Sheffield began, really, because it was the crossing of the Don. And really what you needed was um, the the main drag up the eastern side of Britain, east of the Pennines, the the route, which is nowadays represented either by the M1 or the A1, has always bottlenecked somewhere around here because it's got to get around the head of the Humber. So there's been a a political borderline between tribes and tribes and kingdom and kingdoms running along the Don Valley since prehistory, you know. Um, and we now think of it as the border between Yorkshire and Derbyshire, but I mean, well, one time it would have been more or less the same border. It would have been the border between the kingdom of the Brigantes and the kingdom of Coritano, you know, and all this, all this kind of thing. And Winkerbank was basically built, probably, well, I'm not an archaeologist, so, I'm more interested in the story than the sober history, but my understanding is that Winkerbank was built really as a as a sort of Celtic fortress to watch the the crossing. Uh the point where the that, that road crosses crosses the Don. Um and of course, you know, it was built there, the Romans built Templeborough Fort for the same reason. Um and you wouldn't necessarily know this, but uh, but if you if you do go up to Winkerbank now and look out, then you can find out. And, and 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 it's the sort of thing that you wouldn't even notice unless you were looking for it. But you can see it has that absolutely beautiful view. Nothing can come up Tinsley Viaduct without being seen from miles off from the top of Winkerbank. It's beautifully sighted to have a nice sight line down the south. And of course, you know, it would have been in case there was a Roman legion coming up that way. There's a lot of that, you know, and that I think is, you know, if you think in terms of the Brothers Grimm, if you think in terms of Hans Christian Andersen, then yeah, those are like the tip of the iceberg. Um, but one thing I've constantly found is that if you do do a little bit of digging and a little bit of listening, then you'd be surprised at how much, uh, how much stuff is lying hidden there in plain view, uh, in a sense. And it's not, it's not hidden necessarily always in the sense that people don't 
want it to be known. It's hidden there because since people have taken it for granted or stopped caring about it, you know. And I think part of the charm of the work is to find this stuff and just be like a fanboy around it, you know. It's, yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> I I think that that there's always there's a a layer of magic in just being able to go out and see these you know see these places stories that we're doing in the podcast is uh, the the Laidley Worm at Spindleston Hughes oh yeah yeah and that is uh, it's up in my neck of the woods but I've never been there before and having re- having uh, done the tale now I'm uh, I'm very eager to get up there and see the uh, the bridal rock where Sir Wind apparently threw his bridle across before going down to confront the the, the Laidley Worm. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, you see, that's slightly out of my area. You know, I did I did a book on South Yorkshire, and uh, and I I, mean, I never really sort of made it that far north, so I could probably tell you one or two, uh, but really no more than that. But again, it's only scratching the surface. But the Laidley Worm is one of the ones that ends up in the books quite a lot. Mm. We talked about the act of interpreting, how bringing stories up out of the past sometimes removes them from their context, and how we as storytellers have to be sensitive to that, to try and reconstruct that understanding, or at least acknowledge it. There's always the risk of treating folk and storytelling material with condescension, and because we lack understanding of the time and the place and the people who told them. I've uh spent quite a lot of time uh, reworking uh, some of the Elf Knight ballads into a story. Oh, good, I'm yeah. I'm proud of, so yeah. being uh, Lady Isabel. I've, I've mixed it up a little bit with, uh, do you know the Black Bull of Norway? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, when I first got into storytelling, I didn't know a lot of the background. That story really confused me because you don't realise that these castles that she's going to and the people that she meets are probably supposed to be fairies yeah or that the apparently like other stories make clear that the bull she goes with is actually the husband that turns up later and all these kind of things yeah um, well i mean this is this is the thing is that is uh, a lot of the time i mean the other thing that's that that is tantalizing and and maddening and and um humbling in a sense about the whole thing is the fact that a lot of the time when you do take these stories um particularly when you find them in books then They've been garbled, you know, um, and they've often been garbled because they've been collected or written down by 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 outsiders, you know, by scholars who didn't really fully understand what they were dealing with, and they very often don't spell out, you know, things like the fact that the bull is the husband or the husband is 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 the bull. Um, and there's an example. There's a very good example of that in Grimm's fairy tales, and in in um, there's a story called One Eyes, Two Eyes, and Three Eyes, and um, it's it's a version. It's one of the family of the same family of stories as the Cinderella story, um, and there are a very large number of versions of this story, including that one, One Eyes, Two Eyes, Three Eyes. In which what happens is you have the, the girl who's the, the Cinderella. She's being abused by a step family, but the backstory is that she's uh, her mother has died, um, and that's why that's the cause of the trouble. She has nobody to look out for, and so she's being treated as a servant by the step family. Um, and one of the things that she has to do is go down and herd, herd the cattle. And um, and what happens is one of the you know she she'll have a little calf or, or or a little sheep of the herd that she adopts as a kind of pet. Um, really, as a way of having some kind of company or or affection and so. She has this. She has this pet which she pours all her love and affection into, and um, and of course she's hungry because they're not getting her enough to eat. Um, and then one day the the little calf will turn around and say, "Oh, uh, put your hand in my ear and see what you find." So she puts her hand in the ear and pulls out a tablecloth, and the tablecloth unfolds, and there on the tablecloth is all this food and drink and the calf says there you're eating drink your fill and put the tablecloth back when you're finished so she eats and drinks the fill falls up the tablecloth put it back in the calf here and goes and of course the family notice that she's not hungry anymore and then they start spying on her to try and work out where she's getting all the food from um now there's wonderful things about that story you know but i think one of the things that, that a lot of written versions of the story don't spell out possibly possibly that's because it didn't need to be spelled out to the original audience they'd be able to put two and two together in a way that you and i can't because we're not 
they're not part of the gang in the, in the same way. But the you know the implication is is, is absolutely that that what the calf is is the mother who has returned to look over to watch over her daughter, and the the subtext running underneath the story um, is that love is stronger than death. Particularly, the love of a mother is stronger than death. Mm. Um, and you can see, of course, in a, you know when life was uncertain, and, and you know that that would have been a a, a very a powerful uh, message to a lot of people who were in that situation mm. back then. <laughs> and the thing about that, sorry, I've just got to finish this one off. But, but we, so we did that, and we, you know, we read this theory in the book, and and we went around talking about it, and thought we're terribly clever. And then one day we stopped and asked ourselves, well, what? Yeah, like you know, whose whose idea was it that that food and drink will be stored in a cow's ear? It's the last place you expect to find it. And so we didn't know about that. That was a strange bit of symbolism that we thought was a bit odd. And then we had a friend who had a uh, had a first child who was a son. Um, he was lovely, and we kind of used to hang around with them. And when he was about one, we wanted to take him a present. So we got him uh, an inflatable dragon, right? Okay, and the thing is, you got the hold of this thing. It was about the size of a, of a medium-sized dog, and it was a dragon, and you inflated it with a bike pump, and once it was there, if you were a toddler, you could sit on it and rock back and forth, and um, and this is what we did. So we got hold of this dragon, and we unveiled it with great ceremony and inflated it with a with a... The, the bike pump and presented it to him and he was absolutely delighted with it and we put it on the ground and we picked him up and we plonked him astride this inflatable plastic dragon and immediately he leaned over grabbed hold of the dragon's ear and sucked it <laughs> and I thought that's it that is it that is why you know the implication is if you're if you're a hungry if you're a hungry child if you're then then and and if you have a you know you have a pet calf it's like the comfort blanket isn't it? that's mm. what it is now do we know that for a fact no we don't you know it's pure guesswork but i but i think a lot of the times looking through these stories they don't they don't spell things out because they do this is what i said it's it's about shrewdness you know mm. um they 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 leave they they demand an, an intelligence from the listener to actually fill in the gaps and leave things out themselves. They're not very forgiving and not very full of explanation. They're not they're not in any particular hurry to give themselves away. And I suppose uh, transmission and being transposed out of context because it's interesting that that uh, example is really interesting because one of the other unexplained things about the Black Bull of Norway is the same thing happened. Yes, the daughters riding on the bull. And the bull says, "I'll oh, take some, take some food out, out of my ear." Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I had put that into my version of Lady Isabel as well. Um, and for it was too long, so I had to cut a lot of it out. And one of the things that uh, that Seb said to me when he listened to it is, "What's that stuff coming out of the ear?" So I don't think anybody's going to get that. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you wouldn't would you? because because the thing is, it's all in the context. Mm. You know, everything comes out of the context, and the thing you have to bear in mind is that when you know, is that when when these stories were originally told, they 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 were they were told in in the context between people who 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 knew what the context was, and they could pick up the references, pick up the hints, mm. um, and the process of bringing them to a wider audience involves taking them out of that context, and and it seems to be the case that a lot of the uh, sophistication of, of them is lost in the lost in transmission of course what we have to do at our end of it is, is try and reinvest them with some kind of meaning that is um, and, and it's you know to this we go to academic theory you know we can go to our sort of you know, Jungian theory and look at archetypes and, and, and all that kind of thing and, and 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 essentially what we're sort of doing is constructing an interpretation for these stories which is an entirely valid thing to do you know and there's no, there's, there's no reason there's no reason on earth why you can't actually do that um, but Again, I think it's 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 a question of awareness, and 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 I think part of the fascination of it is trying to guess out what they guess at some of that missing context, mm. you know, because the people who thought of these things were not fools, you know, they they were not fools, and they were they they produced these extraordinary works of art in the least forgiving of circumstances, with 
no resources whatsoever. You know, uh, you know, if you were Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel, at least somebody would get you some paint, mm. you know, and pay for your time to sit there on a trolley painting away. But uh, but to tell a wonder tale like the Black Bull of Norway, um, you know, you were you you wouldn't have the resources at your disposal. So what you have is your imagination, uh, and that's and that's what people use. And I think they are they are the extraordinary quality of these stories. Is the is is how much those artists whose names we will generally never know, you know, how much they did with so little, mm. and often also how little credit they got for it. You know, when they were written down and put in books, the people writing down the books never even thought to take down their names half the time. And if they took a name, then then they took no more than that. Yeah. So um, so it's uh, there's a secret life. <laughs> See it all, I think, and they're, they're, and the older I get, and the more involvement I have in it, the more that becomes the core of the core of my fascination. Because I have, you know, working with Sean Lee, I, I, I in a sense get to overhear her. She has some sense of what of what's going on within the family tradition for her, and it enables me to think, well, if she's got that going on in her tradition, then maybe there is something similar or something comparable going on in into in all the other traditions. They they're like riddles. I mean, they are like riddles. And I suppose the danger is that, you know, as as I say, you know, these are great works of imagination that have been sort of very awkwardly tra- transmitted. To Sometimes they have, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you can look at it and, and and feel like, oh, well, this is just nonsense. You know, these, and, and perhaps make the mistake of thinking that the people who were um, telling them were, were unsophisticated. Well, yeah, I mean that mistake was made by the people who were writing them down. Very often, you know, they 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 expected to find the unsophisticated, unmediated, peasant primitive art, you know, mm. um, and and because that's what they expected to find, that's what they did find in point of fact. And um, I think I think that's that's the view that was sort of put, put on these things from outside, and you still you still you still find an echo of it. And there's still, there's a certain kind of learned condescension towards folk tales and fairy tales, which I which I think is misleading, really, ultimately. But I think you have to kind of check yourself, to sort of you know be a, be alert to the to the sophistications of the original stories, and to a certain extent, I mean, it's always there's always an element of guesswork in it because because you don't it's like a, a riddle that nobody's ever written down the answer to. It's fun guessing. And I think when you start to think that you're getting enough to live in the sense that you can take a story and, and, and return it to a kind of relevance to a contemporary audience or do something that's artistically or creatively satisfying for yourself or for the people around you, I think that is. Yeah, I mean, really, that's probably about as close as you can expect to get us. <laughs> I asked Simon which of his own storytelling projects he is most proud of. I don't know. I mean, they're like children. It's like, which one do you love the most? And you wouldn't want to pick necessarily pick one out. I, I think if I if I had to choose one, it was it was the anniversary of the First World War, uh, 2014, the centenary, and there was a storytelling festival uh, called Beyond the Border, which ran in South Wales, and the director of the festival wanted to do some, wanted to commission some new storytelling pieces to mark the centenary of the war. He did two things. He got two guys. Hugh Lutton and McKenzie to do a piece of storytelling based on the experience of the men who went to fight. And then he asked me to produce a piece uh, on the experiences of conscientious objectors because he knew I had, I had, I had sort of interest in that kind of stuff, a, a prior interest in it. So, so he suggested, and I, it would never occur to me to, to do anything like this. So I went away and I had to kind of construct a piece of storytelling that was about con- more or less contemporary history. So I had to go and do that. I had to go and do some documentary research on the, you know, from the letters and diaries of, of, of conscientious objectors and, and get 60 minutes worth of viable storytelling out of it. And right the way through 2014 through to 2018, pretty much, you know, because it was topical, you know, we were getting, uh, Shelley wrote some songs and she used to come along and she, she, she sang the songs that, and we went, we went out and we did, and we did this sort of thing and it was extraordinary to do it, but it was also extraordinary to hear the stories that were coming out of it. So many people who saw it had a grandfather who'd been a conscientious objector or that was something I know it's this whole, pretty much like with the landscape, you know, talking about Winkerbank, the stories that are buried in plain view. It was a bit like that, just realising what was what was out there that people weren't necessarily 
talking about. They're just just incredible sort of stories of endurance and and, and, and luck. And I was flabbergasted by that. Really, I was flabbergasted. There was one guy who came up in the interval. And he said, "I can't stay to the end." He says, "But I, I, I don't want to. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm only, I've got another point. I've got another. I'm meeting someone at the time. Uh, don't you think I just walk it out?" But he told he told a story in the interval, and, and he, his grandfather had been involved in the mutiny. The colonel had come up from London to settle the mutiny, and they were afraid they were all going to get arrested. They took their own officers hostage at gunpoint. And this guy said, I'm going to go into the meeting with the colonel up from London. Um, it'll just be him and me in the room by ourselves. Um, if I'm not out in 20 minutes, start shooting. And then he went He went into the meeting with the colonel and sat down and said, we've got 20 minutes. <laughs> if, we, if I'm not out there by 20 minutes, they're going to start shooting the officers. And so the colonel said, what do you want? And he said, I want three things. I want, I want, I want a demob date. Oh, we want to know the date by which we're going to be out of the army. We don't want to get sent to Russia to fight the communists. We don't want to get sent to Ireland to fight the nationalists. We want to go home. We fought your war, and that's an end to it. Secondly, we want, I want your word there's going to be no reprisals for anything that's taken place today. And thirdly, we want to be able to keep our firearms until we're actually discharged from the army. And the colonel said, OK, you can have all those things, and they're gone. And he walked out of the meeting with the colonel and said, relax. It's all sorted, and it was all sorted. And this was just, you know, this, and 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 the only thing there was was the story which had been, which had gone down in the family, and also is the 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 fellows who'd um, done it had presented him with a um, with a with a silver bowl, which was which was still in the family. There were several several stories like that, things which never make the headlines. Finally, I finish by asking Simon what it is that he believes is the true value and power. Of storytelling, well, it's human, isn't it? It's what it's it's, it's humanizes. If it does one thing, and I think storytelling does does one of my does millions of things. I think, but I think one major thing that it does or can do is it it humanizes an inhuman environment. You know, and if you're in a if you're in a situation where you know you are at risk of dehumanization, you know, either through your own errors of judgment or because there is some external force weighing in on you, I think storytelling can reawaken the human within you. But there's a um, uh, I can't. I can't remember the title of it, but there's a film about some guys who escaped from a, um, a labour camp in Soviet times. And there's, there's one bit in the movie where there's all these hard-bitten, you know, Russian criminals all sat around, and you know, there's this guy talking, and he's like all scars and you know, terror, and, and and you just know what on earth are they? What on earth are they talking about? You know, and it's all in Russian with subtitles, and then this guy just like muttering away, thinking they must be planning an escape or preparing to back or brewing some illicit vodka or something like that. And then uh, then the guy stops talking, and, and there's another guy covered in tattoos, and he says, "I'll give you more bread if you tell me what happened to Long John Silver." <laughs> and he's telling the story. He's telling the story, you know, and it's. Um, that I think is what it's about, you know. It it it, it it's about rehumanizing a dehumanizing environment because um, it's, it's so easy to forget. You know, life is life is difficult and stressful and worrying at the best of times and uncertain. And I think um, there are many bad uses to which you can put a story, but there are many good uses as well. And one of them is I think to actually kind of maintain a, maintain a grip on your own humanity. You've been listening to Steel City Tales, an episode of Law and Legend with guest storyteller Simon Haywood and your host, Rick Scott. Our very special thanks to Simon for taking the time out to talk to us. We hope that you've enjoyed dipping your toes into the wider world of traditional storytelling today. To find out more about episodes of Law and Legend, you can visit www.lawandlegend.co.uk. If you'd like to support our work, you can find the link there to support us regularly on Patreon by giving a dollar or a pound for each episode that we produce, or offer a one-time donation via PayPal. The music in today's episode was performed by Robert Bentall, with additional music from Yorkshire folk singer Ray Hearn. 
You can find out more about the 18th century balladeer Joseph Maver by visiting the accompanying blog post for this episode at lawandlegend.co.uk. And you can hear more of Ray Hearn's music on his website at rayhearn.co.uk. That link is also on the episode blog post. We leave you with Ray's full performance of Joseph Maver's protest ballad, The Norfolk Street Riots. On August the 4th, 1795, a group of soldiers gathered in Norfolk Street in the city of Sheffield, refusing to march for their commander in a dispute over wages long withheld. They were joined by many supporters from the city at a time when food prices were punishingly high. The commander of the local law enforcement, Colonel Robert Althorpe, first read them the riot act and then attacked the crowd of civilians with his sabre. When more soldiers arrived, they opened fire on the crowd, killing two men. Not only was the colonel not punished, but he was apparently rewarded for his actions. Maver himself was a witness to the riot and the injustice that followed, and decries the event here in song. Corruption tells me homicide is a willful murder justified a striking precedent was tried in august 95 when armed assassins dressed in blue most wantonly their townsmen slew and magistrates and juries too that murder did connive I saw the tragic scene commence A madman drunk without offence Drew out his sword in false pretence And wounded some more wise Defenceless boys he chased about the timid cried, the bold did shout, which brought the curious, no doubt, to see what meant the noise. The gazing crowd stagnated stood to see a wretch that should know good. Insatiate thirst for human blood Like one sent from beneath This gave me well to understand A sword put in a madman's hand Especially a villain grand Must terminate in death was manifest in the event that what the bloody tyrant meant was murder without precedent though by injustice screened the current mayor column swell designing men may falsehoods tell not all the powers of earth and hell can justify that fiend. This armed banditty filled with spleen at his command like bloodhounds keen in fine to crown the horrid scene a shower of bullets fired the consequence was deep distress more widows and more fatherless the devil blushed and did confess twas more than he required corruption cried for this exploit his worship shall be made a knight I hold his conduct just and right And think him all divine 
Oppression need not fear alarms Since tyranny has got such swarms Of gallant heroes bearing arms To butcher grunting swine Stones besmeared with blood and brains Was the result of Robin's pains Surviving friends wept o'er the stains When dying victims bled As Abel's blood aloud did call To him whose power created all Eternal vengeance sure must fall upon his guilty head. Ye wanton coxcombs, fops and fools, aristocratic dupes and tools, subject yourselves to better rules and cast away that badge. Remember, on a future day, corruption must be done away. Then what will you presume to say when truth shall be your joy?